Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Allison DeAngelis. I'm Adam Forstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, September 8th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Illumina, the biggest company in genome sequencing, is in a predicament. STAT's Matthew Herper joins us to explain an $8 billion merger on hold. We also discuss the biggest news in the life sciences, including a major development in ALS, the latest in cancer research, and a well-funded new player in biotech venture capital. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Angus McCauley. Thanks for listening. You've probably heard of the mRNA technology that has been used to make vaccines for COVID-19. But did you know that there are breakthroughs on the horizon to put mRNA to work against a host of other diseases? Tracy Humphreys, a scientist and marketer from Cytiva, is here to tell us more. Thanks, Angus. mRNA is showing tremendous potential to cure diseases like autoimmune and neurological disorders and even deadly pancreatic cancers. Visit Cytiva.com forward slash advanced therapeutics to learn how we're working with biopharma companies to adjust their manufacturing strategies and bring this exciting technology to patients. That's Cytiva, C-Y-T-I-V-A dot com forward slash advanced dash therapeutics. So let's start with ALS, where the quest to find new and actually effective treatments for the disease uh, has been long and fraught. What we learned this week, Adam, is that the FDA appears to have changed its opinion of a potential new therapy for ALS. You sat through a multi-hour FDA meeting yesterday on a drug from Amelix. What happened? Yes, Damien, I did. It was about a seven-hour FDA advisory panel meeting uh, held on Wednesday. Um, And it was dramatic. Like, for biotech geeks like myself, this was like Game of Thrones, uh, you know, minus kind of the the gore and the sex, but all of the intrigue that you get from a good Game of Thrones episode. Um, And, you know, basically what was going on here was this, you know, this was the second time this group of advisors was meeting to review and discuss this Amelix drug. Um, And uh, that in itself was a kind of a a rarity. The FDA rarely holds a a second FDA advisory panel. And like almost from the beginning, this uh, panel threw uh, or the FDA threw a plot twist into the mix. Um, You know, as you mentioned, you know, the FDA had kind of been very skeptical about this Amelix drug and had raised questions about whether data from a, a successful clinical trial was kind of persuasive enough to approve this drug for patients with ALS. And, you know, even in the internal review uh, that the FDA had posted uh, a few days before uh, the Wednesday's briefing, you know, had raised some questions. But right from the start, Billy Dunn, who is the FDA's top uh, regulator of neurology drugs, basically came out and and in, in essentially what was instructions to the panel, basically told them to, you know, to basically use the most flexibility um, possible when considering the data and, and kind of signal to them that the FDA kind of was looking for a way to approve this drug, even if there were lingering questions about whether the drug was truly effective. And this was something that 
the Amelix co-CEOs, the the co-founders, um, also then kind of responded to in the meeting, right, Adam? Yeah, yeah. It was really it was kind of crazy, Allison. So right at the end, so Billy Dunn's kind of like this thirty minute introductory remarks, this spiel that he's giving at the beginning, and and it's really what was it just it clearly sent a signal that they were looking for the panel to say yes. And and as a reminder, back in March, the same panel basically voted against the drug. Uh, and he, at the end of Dunn's remarks, he basically just challenged the co-CEOs of Amelix to say that um, if a an ongoing phase three clinical trial, they have this big confirmatory clinical trial that's ongoing, it's underway, we're going to get data from that in 2023, late 2023, early 2024. Like if that study turns out to be negative and assuming that the drug gets put on the market now, that the company would basically voluntarily pull the drug from the market. So Dunn basically challenges the CEO say, well, we, I want you right now to state publicly that you'll do this. And Justin Klee, who is one of the co-CEOs of Amlix, gets on, like responds to Dunn's challenge and says, yes, we will do this. We, you know, if if this confirmatory study is negative, we will pull the drug off the market. And like you never hear a biotech CEO say that about the drug. Um, and that really kind of just set the tone. So from, you know, and, you know, obviously the meeting, this was the beginning of the meeting. So like seven hours later after they discussed all this data, you know, <laughs> the vote was seven to two, seven yes votes uh, in favor of recommending approval of the drug, two against. That was a change. The The previous vote back in March was six to four, six no votes. So you had like four people who voted no in March, flip their votes into yes uh, this this at this panel meeting. And in the remarks and comments that the panelists made uh, after their vote, they said that, yeah, this this kind of introductory thing, this particularly this commitment that the company made to to pull the drug if it later f- turns out to be ineffective was a was a factor in their in their reasons for flipping. So again, it was just there was a lot of drama. It was super interesting. I love these advisory committee meetings because there is all of these twists and turns. And and ultimately, what's going to happen now is the FDA is going to approve this Amelix drug for ALS. Um, the decision date is at the end of September. Um, and, you know, it's it's going to happen. This is going to be, we're going to have a new drug to treat patients with ALS. And and yes, there will be lingering questions that will sort of hover, hover over the drug as to whether or not it actually does work or not. But um, unlike a lot of companies where the confirmatory studies can take years and years and years and we don't get the answer, we're going to know relatively quickly. So like essentially by the end of 2023, we will know whether this drug works or not. And so that's a that's a reasonable amount of time to wait for a definitive answer. While, you know, obviously we know that ALS is this devastating disease, um, you know, patients, you know, time is of the essence for these ALS patients. And so they're willing to take the risk um, to take a drug that, you know, may or may not work for them. And um, we'll know soon enough whether it does. And I think, you know, obviously we'll we'll see what happens with the confirmatory study. And that will obviously be the next, probably the big drama that unfolds. Um, to see whether or not you know it, it does work, and then what happens after that. But again, um, you know, bottom line is that you know th- there will be a new ALS treatment uh, on the market relatively soon here in the U.S. Wow, what a what another chapter in the the saga of Billy Dunn, 
as <laughs> FDA yeah, authority. Exactly. <laughs> the saga of Billy Dunn, that sounds that could be like a Netflix series. Or like a country western song from the 70s. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my dog died and Billy Dunn approved my ALS, ALS treatment. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, on, a, on another note, you know, Damien, you jumped on. We had some very interesting data from Al Nylum that, that came out this morning on Thursday. Um, talk to us about the Apollo B study. Right. So, you know, we spoke about last month, we got top line data from a very closely watched phase three trial run by Al Nylum of their drug, Patisseran, in a disease called ATTR-CM, which the CM is cardiomyopathy, the ATTR I won't spell out l- largely because there are some words in there I struggle to pronounce. The point is, it's a cardiovascular disease once thought of to be rare that is now understood to be quite a bit more common, and thus treatments like alnylums at came to be seen as potential blockbuster medicine. So in August, we learned that the drug met its primary endpoint, which was beating placebo on what's called the six-minute walk test, which is how far people can walk over the course of six minutes. If you stem the decline or slow the decline in the number of meters someone walks, that's considered to be a surrogate of improving their cardiovascular health, or at least improving it relative to placebo because for the obvious reasons, it's, it's harder to walk a longer distance if your heart isn't pumping as well. So cut to this week, what we learned were the actual details of just how well alnylam's treatment did versus placebo on that metric. And so the numeral is 14.7. The drug did 14.7 meters better, or rather patients on it did 14.7 meters better on the six-minute walk test after one year than those on placebo. That was enough for a statistically significant difference, and people expect that to be enough to win uh, FDA approval in this indication for Alnylam's drug. However, if you look at analyst reports, if you, you know, talking to physicians, there was an expectation that perhaps the difference would be something more like 30 meters or even as many as 40. I saw um, a survey that the analyst at Evercore ISI did with, I think, 22 cardiologists, and they came up with about 43 meters at the median for what those doctors said would be a clinically meaningful benefit. The problem, and I realize we're getting into a lot of numerals and uh, acronyms here, but the issue is that... uh, as ATTRCM has become better understood, and after the 2019 approval of a drug from Pfizer, which was the first drug indicated for this disease, people have gotten, doctors have gotten better at diagnosing it. And as a result, people are diagnosed earlier in the disease. And so that has made clinical trials unpredictable in, in this indication. So in, in the trial that Pfizer won FDA approval with, they saw a more than 30 meter difference in six minute walk test results at one year between placebo patients and patients on the drug. The thing is, the placebo group declined by about 60 meters on that measure. In Alnylam's trial, the placebo group declined by about 21 meters on the same measure, which is to say that basically patients in these trials are probably not as sick as they were in the trials of yesteryear, which makes these one cross-trial comparisons, they're always fraught, but they're especially fraught here. And also the notion that alnylam's data are disappointing, I mean, that some people may feel that way, but you can't really say that, oh, well, it's inferior to Pfizer's drug because number is smaller. And so that's a long-winded way of saying there are a lot of outstanding questions with this therapy, with this indication. It's a disease that, like I said, was once considered to be rare is now perceived to be more more prominent, but that means that we're still learning about it. And you know, there was a trial last year from a company called Bridge Bio where the placebo group only declined, I think, about nine meters 
on that same measure over the course of a year, which kind of baffled everyone and threw, threw all these assumptions asunder. And it was like, can we believe in this metric in the future? So on some level, the Elnilum trial, I spoke to a cardiologist last night who, who treats and studies this disease. He was like, this study is really, really encouraging to me. I mean, yes, the efficacy is positive, but what I'm encouraged by is that the placebo group actually declined, which suggests that, yes, we can keep running clinical trials. We actually, you know, we don't have to start from scratch when it comes to developing new medicines for this can be devastating disease. So, Damien, you spoke to uh, Elnilum CEO, Yvonne Greenstreet, about all of this. Like, what, what did she tell you and kind of help put this drug in sort of the context of Alnylam's, you know, entire business. Obviously, you know, they are fo- focused on these RNA interference drugs. They've been, you know, really successful uh, in getting new drugs approved recently. Like, how important is this drug and kind of what, what does this mean for, for their business? Yeah, you know, Yvonne Greenstreet was, uh, she said, ecstatic with this data. They're very happy that, again, they met the primary endpoint um, and also a key secondary endpoint. And as she put it, you know, it, it's a small trial, so it's harder to extrapolate some of the, you know, lower down goals of it. But as she pointed out, everything is pointing in the right direction, favoring the drug in terms of improving patients' lives. And this is really, really big for Elnilam, both because, you know, this. If this medicine is approved uh, for this indication, it would likely become you know the biggest market that Alnylam can treat. But if you zoom out, as you mentioned, you know RNAi being their baseline science, the confirmation that the drug worked biologically. I mean, it, it targets a protein called TTR. It's supposed to silence the production of it, and in this trial the serum levels of that of that protein were reduced by 87% compared to placebo. So that's, you know, that doesn't necessarily affect patients or that doesn't speak necessarily to patients' day-to-day function the way the 6-minute walk test does, but if you're a biologist, you're saying, well we we hit it, we got the target, we were right. And then if you zoom out, alnylam has uh, a subcutaneous version basically of this same drug that's in a much larger and much longer clinical trial in ATTRCM expected to read out next year. And if that's positive, then basically we're looking at them stringing together links in the chain from their baseline science of RNAi to targeting TTTR for this disease to having you know arguably an improved version of this same medicine and then you know you look five maybe more years in the future and that's the point where analysts are saying this franchise of medicines could be worth upwards of five billion dollars which for Alnylam which has been in business for twenty years or so um, and has never turned a profit that is a that's a massive commercial windfall so so that's kind of the big picture I think on the corporate level so listeners to this podcast probably know that uh, Damien and I are big soccer fans and and actually are producer Teresa is also a big <laughs> soccer fan so we are very familiar with the injection of petrodollars into the global <laughs> soccer. Uh, industry slash world. Um, but uh, Allison, you recently um, wrote a profile of uh, a, a new up and coming uh, VC firm, uh, which also is ba- well is based in the United Arab Emirates. So it's like petrodollars being injected into biotech. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Mudabala? Um, Mubadala. Okay. See, I can't even pronounce it. We, we, we had this whole thing about trying to get the pronunciation right. <laughs> Mubadala Capital Ventures. Tell us a little bit about them. Yeah, well, I mean, sports fans like will probably be like slightly familiar with the Mubadala name. In biotech, they're kind of a name that operates in the background and has for a while. Um, for most of their history, this you know their their uh, time working kind of with biotech investing, they've been somebody that like handed money over to the 5AMs and the arch ventures of the world to invest. And about five years ago, this sovereign wealth fund, which has 
$280 billion in assets under management. They've got a lot of money. You know, a couple members of their team convinced them, hey, look, like, we should really be doing some of this venture investing. We should do it ourselves. You know, we should set up a shop in the U.S. And they have this this small, about, you know, $2 billion fund that they've set aside called uh, Mubadala uh, Capital Ventures. And in the last five years, they've become a really, they're, they're becoming a very active player in the biotech world. And you know, sovereign wealth funds, like we, we've seen them gravitate towards biotech in the last several years. I mean, there we've seen, you know, the Alaska permanent funds and the Temasex of the world, you know, in press releases in like Series Ds and Series Cs. But Mubadala is kind of standing out because they're actually moving. They're being really active in early stage investing. And they're now actually um, working with Arch. They're about to launch a, a startup that they founded with Arch and with Polaris Partners. They partnered up with them and they're about they're working on another biotech startup that they are seeding and then they will contribute to the Series A. So they're becoming, you know, it's like a six person team, but they're becoming very active in the biotech world. Now, the kind of question is, and this is like the perfect example of this whole like lamenting of like tourist investors in biotech in the last, you know, several years because of COVID. I mean, talk about there's no greater tourist investor than a firm out of the United Arab Emirates. And there are still people in the biotech world who are not sold on Mubadala and are just like, yeah, it's just another tourist investor. You know, in five more years, they're going to have you know, turned their priorities elsewhere. You know, they're going to be focusing more on their new alternative petrochemicals that really fuels, you know, <laughs> their their main country, their their main purpose. But there are some who who say that they're really an up and coming player. Well, yeah, that's one one aspect I found fascinating in your story. You know, as you mentioned, they're they're working with Arch uh, and and with Polaris, and everybody is getting along and saying nice things about one another. But you can imagine other biotech VCs looking from a distance and seeing a sovereign wealth fund getting into creating the companies itself and thinking, well, no, actually, your place is giving me money and letting me collect my two and 20. I'm the one who knows about biotech. Like, you, you could see this kind of being, if this trend were to catch on, it would, I mean, not really obviate, but it would kind of cut in on, you would assume, what biotech VCs count on, which is getting in on the best deals, trying to get the best terms, et cetera. If there's a multi-hundred billion dollar competitor suddenly, you know, that shakes up. I mean, that's like a that's a big fish in what is a relatively small pond when it comes to biotech VCs. So you can see how, you know, beyond the criticism that perhaps they're just tourists, well, if they're not just tourists, then it could actually have like a deleterious effect on, you know, some of the name brand VCs that already exist. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean they're the kind of like stalwart, you know, biotech VCs like to kind of say, you know, amongst themselves that company creation is really only something that they have the expertise to do, you know, that it's very difficult and very trying. And what might be giving them comfort at this point is, you know, the the head of basically this, you know, uh, Mubadala's venture team, um, Ala Halawa, has you know said to me very candidly that they're not at the place where they could do this alone. They are they are nowhere near, you know, just yet being able to actually start companies themselves. That's why they're working with Arch. That's why they're working with Polaris. It is an ambition that one day they could you know become and you know a company creator independently. But for right now, he's like, they're still relying on, you know, picking up the phone and being able to call up 
Bob Nelson and say, hey, Bob, like, you know, hey, buddy, hey, pal, what are you working on? I've heard that you're working on this thing. I want to get involved in it. So finally, we are speaking in the middle of one of the largest cancer research conferences in the world, ESMO, the European Society of Medical Oncology, uh, is happening this weekend. Um, Adam, what what are the key takeaways? What are the headlines going into the conference about like what kind of data people are talking about? I think the key takeaway is that uh, ESMO is happening in Paris, and we are not in Paris, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, you know, um, like you said, Damien, ESMO is uh, one of the larger uh, cancer conferences in the world. It's kind of the European ASCO. Um, and yeah, I would say this year is kind of incremental. It's, there's not huge sort of jaw-dropping news. Um, uh, I, we got some uh, new data from uh, Gilead's uh, breast cancer drug, Trodelvi, that came out this week, uh, which showed a, a survival advantage, which obviously is, is important. Uh, patients and with the most common form of breast cancer uh, live longer after taking Trodelvi. Um, that was somewhat of a... I want to say somewhat of a surprise, given that the drug was thought to have a more modest benefit um, when measured by tumor progression, but um, the survival benefit obviously is is important and will help Gilead uh, compete against a, a similar drug from Daiichi Sankyo and AstraZeneca called Enhertu. That was actually all the rage, if you remember, back in uh, June at the ASCO meeting. Um, and after that, there's you know, it's a, obviously there's going to be a lot of sort of you know immunotherapy data from Merck and Bristol um, and AstraZeneca and Roche, because that, that's always what we see at these cancer conferences. Um, uh, probably uh, one of the other kind of key data points that we'll get uh, this weekend uh, is uh, confirmatory data from Merck's KRAS-targeted drug called Lumacris. Uh, this is a, a randomized study that the, the company needed to uh, needed to run to confirm the accelerated approval of Lumacris. Um, that study is positive. We'll we'll get sort of more detailed data uh, from them uh, on Sunday. Um, but overall, you know, it's a cancer cancer drug development marches on. Almost exactly a year ago, Illumina, the biggest company in genome sequencing, closed an $8 billion merger with Grail, a cancer diagnostics firm, even though antitrust regulators were yet to approve it. Now, after 12 months of lawsuits and letdowns, it's starting to look like Illumina might have no choice but to give up. The Grail saga is the latest in a series of setbacks for one of the most successful companies in biotech history. Stats Matt Herper has been covering Illumina for nearly two decades. Matt, is that true? Nearly two decades? Yeah, I remember the first meeting with Jay Flatley at Pete's Tavern back when they were competing with Affymetrics. Remember Affymetrics, Adam? <laughs> I do. You and I are both old. So, Matt, you're joining us now to talk about this current predicament that uh, Illumina finds itself in. Welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Predicament is the right word. So let's start with Grail. Illumina said this week that there was an antitrust ruling in Europe that might give it no choice but to basically walk back this $8 billion merger. What would that process even entail? It probably means listing Grail on a public stock exchange. It could also mean finding another buyer or other private investors. But given the size of the company, the most obvious thing would be a listing where Illumina investors get Grail shares to do with what they will. Um, 
we don't really know. Uh, one of the the ideas behind closing this deal was that these processes would take a long time, and even if Olumina couldn't integrate Grail, it could profit from its cancer diagnostic test getting out there and starting to get used and valuations going up. Uh, the current state of the biotech market is a problem uh, for doing that. And if they had to sell fast, now we don't know. They haven't disclosed. It's not clear what the terms of that kind of a spinoff would be. But the faster it happens, the more the chances are that, you know, this $8 billion they spent basically gets vaporized. Well, right. And to your point, as you wrote this week, this risk was baked into the deal from the outset because Illumina chose to close the merger without waiting on getting sign off from these regulatory authorities that now threaten to unwind the whole thing. So what was the company's thinking at the time? Like, how did they wrap their heads around this risk? You mentioned that, you know, it seemed to be kind of a a win-win or heads-I-win, tails-you-lose situation. But now that it's not playing out that way, I don't know, how do you reflect on the decision making? Well, I mean, one thing that that the Illumina camp would definitely say is that this is kind of a black swan, that they really think that Europe doesn't even have jurisdiction to block this deal. Uh, The FTC is letting it through. Uh, They're challenging it on jurisdiction. The problem is, what do they do if Europe refused to grant a a stay while they are litigating this and they have to divest this company that they've already bought? Um, The deal terms were apparently written in such a way that they might have had to have walked away instead of closing the deal. Um, But that does mean all of those Illumina investors have now gotten paid. There is a royalty they'd get in the future, and it's not like they're just going to take their shares back. Uh, So it does put them in a bit of a fix, and this is the second time this has kind of happened to Illumina. Right. You mentioned that, Matt, and I wanted to kind of get into that. You know, this is, like you said, this is the second time. Back in 2018, Illumina tried to buy the sequencing firm Pacific Biosciences. Uh, that deal uh, that deal didn't happen. So I wonder, you know, is Illumina a victim of its own success when it comes to sequencing? You know, basically, you know, has the company grown so big that buying any ostensible competitor constitutes an antitrust violation? Well, in sequencing, there's a really good argument that that's true. And that was the argument against PacBio. You guys already sequence most of the DNA that gets sequenced. You can't go out and buy other people who are your potential competitors. One of the challenges for Illumina for its entire existence has been that DNA sequencing is this thing where you can see this vast potential where like maybe every baby gets sequenced, right? Maybe every cancer patient gets sequenced again and again and again and again to find mutations in their DNA. And people have been talking about this for years. And the problem for Illumina is they're kind of, they're the ones who make the sequencing, but a lot of those other products are potentially more valuable and they'd like to own that downstream stuff. And what they're getting blocked from doing here is buying basically one of the biggest downstream applications. If you can detect cancer early with a blood test, which is what Grail is aiming to do, that's a big potential market. And one of the ironies here is that Grail was originally part of Illumina. Um, This is a company that was spun out 
uh, with money from people, including Bill Gates, to, to do all this work and raised all this money, but was originally kind of an Illumina project. And now when Illumina tries to go buy it back, they're being told, well, that's anti-competitive. So it also creates an issue for, we see that structure a lot in biotech where, well, I'm not going to work on it. I'll see if we can get other investors to pay. Um, this could lead to questions about that kind of structure for research going forward. Yeah, as, as you mentioned, this is very different than the Pacific Biosciences deal. Grail is doing something different. They're working in a space of liquid biopsy. And when this deal was first getting off the ground, their test, which is designed to detect cancer at its very early stages, um, was just becoming available. How, like, you know, in the background of this deal, how is that launch going? We don't really have a very clear idea of how it's going. And it's still very early days. Um, it's covered by some commercial insurers. It's not being covered by Medicare. It's not being covered by most commercial insurers. And um, so, you know, I think you can get varying opinions. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence of that there are certain people where the test is available who are going out and, and getting it and that there's kind of a, a group of worried well who are eager um, for it. But we haven't really seen a full-scale launch. Um, one of the big things that's happening is that the uh, the United Kingdom is going to be doing a randomized trial um, in the NHS of it. Uh, there's You can debate the endpoints on that, but how that rollout goes will have a big impact on the long-term potential of the test. But I think it's... It's still early, and uh, you know the the other thing, and and one of the reasons that the anti-competitive argument is there is that all the other companies that are doing these kinds of tests, companies like Gardent, Exact Sciences, which bought Thrive, and they're all behind Grail, but they all do basically use Illumina technology. So the the antitrust worry is, can this company that basically makes the tools all these tests are run on also own one of the tests. Illumina argues yes, and that they can put firewalls in place. But that's what the regulators are worried about. And the FTC uh, ruling did look like in the US that this would be kosher, although that's being appealed to by the FTC. So if in fact, this deal comes apart, what does Illumina do to grow? Because one thing we haven't mentioned in the backdrop here is that They've had a string of what Wall Street perceived as disappointing financial results and disappointing projections for at least the near future. And I think the Grail deal, as you mentioned, was an effort to buy some of the downstream, very valuable uh, products, for lack of a better term, of their technology. So if they are left just with that technology, what comes next? Well, um, Wall Street actually hates the Grail deal because it hurts earnings in the near term. For Illumina, I mean, they basically have to fend off all of these competitors. Some of the patents on some of their sequencing innovations are expiring. You are seeing these startups that are looking to take on Illumina. So far, not with much success. There are these areas like what PacBio does in Oxford Nanopore, the, the so-called long-read sequencing, where you're looking at much bigger stretches of DNA at once that, that could be competitive. Illumina has a new chemistry that they've been talking up called Chemistry X, 
which sounds really cool, but nobody knows what it is. Um, you know, the, the question is always going to be, can you get the cost of sequencing lower and increase the market? And then also they need to figure out ways of, and Grail was kind of the ultimate of this, of capturing some of that upstream revenue, that they don't just want to be a cog in the machine. They don't just want to be Intel inside here. They want to also find a way to be Microsoft. Um, that is is could be tough. And there is a level of, you know, Illumina sequencing is ubiquitous in science. It's ubiquitous in pharma. And as things get big, it can be harder to grow. Matt, you're a wise man. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Adam. See you guys soon. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you, Teresa Gaffney, for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke, and our theme music is by Brian Joel. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and which sovereign wealth fund or petrochemical dollar maker should invest in biotech next. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. We'll see you next week.